Chapter 5 of A History of American Political Theories by Charles Edward Merriam. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Jacksonian Democracy The radical movement, which was destined to break down the power of the landed aristocracy, leveled old barriers of exclusiveness, and opened the way for government of a more popular character, took the form of Jacksonian democracy. Its leaders made few contributions to democratic political theory, but they broadened the application of principles already familiar. By expanding the electorate, a revolution was made in the basis of the democracy, and radical changes in the superstructure were equally conspicuous. To the more important features in this movement, attention will now be directed. Two great forces were back of the Jacksonian democracy. These were in the first place the frontier conditions and ideas in the West and South, and in the second place the growth of cities and an industrial class. By 1830, nine new states had been added to the original 13, and by 1850 there had been 16 admitted, of which only two, Maine and Vermont, were not on the western frontier. In these new states, the conditions, economic and social, were highly favorable to the development of the democratic spirit. Frontier life tended to produce self-reliance, independence, and individuality. It developed a sense of equality on the part of the members of the community. There was no great wealth, no highly polished society, no leisure class, no historic tradition. The conditions were accordingly unfavorable to aristocratic theory or practice. To the hardy pioneers, the idea of a jure divino king, an hereditary nobility or especially privileged class was ridiculous in the extreme, while religious or property qualifications, permanent or long tenure of office, and similar restrictions were altogether unacceptable. They firmly believed in the sovereignty of the people, and furthermore, in the necessity of giving to the mass of the population as far as possible the direction of public affairs. Anything in the shape of special privilege or class exclusiveness became at once an object of suspicion and distrust, but confidence in the people was always met with hearty applause, and was the surest way to popular approval. A second cause was the increase of the city population and the development of other than agricultural pursuits. By reason of this development, there came into existence a population and a set of interests different from those of the freeholders' aristocracy. They demanded the right to share in the active exercise of political power, exerted pressure in this direction, and helped to bring about the same state of affairs in the East that was being realized in the West and Southern states. This democratic tendency found expression in national politics through the election of the presidency of Andrew Jackson. In his personality, the new leader embodied the characteristics of the new democracy. His defeat of John Quincy Adams, the skilled and accomplished statesman, marked the advent of another type of chief executive and the end of a long line of the old-school presidents. To many grave thinkers, the election of Jackson seemed a triumph of King Mob and portended the ascendancy of the worst elements of the people, the rule of an ignorant and incapable democracy. They thought that Republican institutions were threatened with the very gravest danger and would not have been surprised to see them wholly subverted. The importance of the new departure was soon felt in the national government. The president regarded himself as the representative of the people and asserted the rights of the executive against the legislature and the judiciary as they had never been asserted before. In the days when state constitutions had first been formed, overwhelming predominance had been given to the legislative department and in the national government also. Congress had occupied the most conspicuous place up to this time. Congressmen had nominated candidates for the presidency, had already directly chosen two presidents, their lawmaking power had seldom met with executive check, they had occupied the foremost place in the direction of the affairs of the nation. In the days of Jackson, the rule of King Caucus was overthrown in favor of the less aristocratic nominating convention. The long-dormant veto power was brought out and used in a way that had never been thought of in the old regime. 
The constitutional strength of the executive was for the first time revealed, and the legislature met its first decisive check. Fear of the executive was soon aroused, and the most painful anticipations of presidential tyranny were expressed. The Whig Party was organized in opposition to what its leaders considered the abuse of the executive prerogative. Clay, Calhoun, and Webster, the ablest intellects of the time, struggled hard in defense of Congress, denouncing the action of the president in the most unsparing terms. Webster said, The contest for ages has been to rescue liberty from the grasp of executive power. To this end, all that could be gained from the imprudence, snatched from the weakness, or wrung from the necessities of crowned heads, has been carefully gathered up, secured, and hoarded as the rich treasures, the very jewels of liberty. The executive, he urged, has always been regarded as a line which must be caged. The executive power is not the defender of liberty, but our very security depends upon the watchfulness of it. The president he denounced as a Briarius who sits in the center of our system, and with his hundred hands touches everything, moves everything, controls everything. Clay was equally vigorous in his attacks on the executive. The power of the president, he said, is felt from one extremity to the other of this vast republic. By means of principles which he has introduced and innovations which he has made in our institutions, alas. But too much countenanced by Congress and a confiding people, he exercises uncontrolled the power of the state. In one hand he holds the purse, and in the other brandishes the sword of the country. Myriads of dependents and partisans scattered over the land are ever ready to sing Hosannas to him and to laud to the skies whatever he does. He has swept over the government during the last eight years like a tropical tornado, Every department exhibits traces of the ravages of the storm. To the leaders of the Whigs, indeed, it seemed that, as in the 17th century in England, the people were threatened by the power of the executive and should find their natural ally in the legislature. This was clearly expressed by Calhoun when he said that he considered the Congress the great central point where all power must receive its sanction and direction, and that the large amount of discretionary authority, which must under every government be lodged somewhere, should be placed in the hands of the legislature. Still more radically, this theory was stated at times. For example, it was said on the floor of the Senate, the executive power which represents the common force of society is, in every just theory and in the nature of things, inferior to the legislative power, which is the representative of the common intelligence and the common will, and that too, precisely in the degree to which brute force is inferior to reason. The essence of the Whig doctrine was that the legislature is naturally the closest representative of the people, and that executive should be an object of constant suspicion and distrust. The legislature, however, had reached the climax of its power in the days of the revolution, and there was now a pronounced reaction against that department. This was one of the most significant points in Andrew Jackson's administration. He announced himself as the representative of the people in as true a sense as the Congress and declared his independence of, or better, his right to an equal rank with, the other two departments. The executive, since the time of the revolution, shorn of power, again found strength to assert himself in the affairs of state. It may fairly be said that one of the first fruits of the new democratic regime was a decisive victory for the executive, representing the people, over the congressional aristocracy inherited from the revolution. It was the old story over again of a strong executive supported by the masses of the people against a well-entrenched aristocracy, and the victory rested with the executive. Jackson undoubtedly believed that he was the representative of the people against the legislative aristocracy. The people apparently regarded him as their champion in the conflict and were willing to trust him with great powers in order to ensure the victory. A similar expansion of the executive power is noticeable in the individual states. In fact, the movement began there and not in the national government. The selection of the governor was taken away from the legislature and submitted to the direct vote of the people. 
The term of office was materially lengthened. The great weapon for the defense of the executive prerogative de veto was in general vested in the governor, and also a larger share of the appointing power. At the same time, the former high property qualifications were removed, and the position was made accessible to all citizens so far as wealth was concerned. In short, there arose a new idea in regard to the executive and his place in the scheme of government. This was well expressed by one of the delegates to the New York Convention of 1821. An erroneous idea, said he, seems to have prevailed in relation to the powers and origin of the governor. Who is he, and by whom is he appointed? Does he derive his authority from the king of Great Britain? Is he a usurper? If so, let us unite to depose him. But, sir, he is the man of the people, elected by their suffrages and identified with their interests. He is a watchful sentinel to guard us from evil, and a zealous friend to admonish us of error. It is evident, then, that one pronounced feature of the democratic movement in the first half of the century was the elevation of the executive and the degradation of the legislative power. The early distrust of the executive, which once took the form of a fear that monarchy might return, had disappeared, and also the early confidence in the legislature. Popular suspicion seemed to be directed not so much against a tyrannical monarchy as against encroaching aristocracy. The public was willing to entrust large powers to one man, but was jealous of the authority of a legislative coterie or a banking aristocracy or aristocracy in any shape or form. As has often been the case, the instrument by which the aristocracy was overthrown, in this instance also, was a powerful executive. In the national field, this change centers around the career of Andrew Jackson. In the states, the same tendency was at work, readjusting the balance between the legislative and the executive power. Another point in national administration was carried for the radical democracy, when the principle of rotation in office and the spoil system obtained recognition. This was primarily a victory for party organization, but the idea of rotation in office was a democratic one. This result had already been partly achieved by the provisions in state constitutions for short terms of office, and in many instances by limitations upon re-eligibility. But now the general principle was accepted that all offices should be held for short terms only, in order that all citizens might have better opportunity to secure a position. The idea rested on the assumption that one man is about as well fitted for any office as any other man, and may therefore be safely entrusted with official responsibility. It was diametrically opposed to the doctrine that office should be held on the ground of special fitness, and that long tenure of office gives one, in a sense, a vested right to the position. By no one was the popular notion more clearly stated than by Jackson himself in his first annual message to Congress. Here are found the two ideas on which the new system rested, namely that experience is not very important for a public servant, and secondly, that a long tenure of office is actually detrimental to good public service. There are perhaps few men, said Jackson, who can for any great length of time enjoy office and power without being more or less under the influence of feelings unfavorable to the discharge of their public duties. And again, he argued that the duties of all public officers are, or at least admit of being made so plain and simple that men of intelligence may readily qualify themselves for their performance. And I cannot but believe that more is lost by long continuance of men in office than is generally to be gained by their experience. He further urged that the proposed measure would destroy the idea of prosperity in office now so generally connected with official station, and although individual distress may sometimes be produced, it would, by promoting that rotation which constitutes a leading principle in the Republican creed, give healthful action to the system. Such was the doctrine of rotation in office as announced by President Jackson. 
This view seems to be that experience had before entering office is unnecessary and experience gained after entering office is apt to make the officer less fit to serve the public. John Taylor in his inquiry asserted that more talent is lost by long continuance in office than by the system of rotation. Talents are called out by the prospect of employment and smothered by the monopoly of experience. On the floor of the United States Senate, it was predicted that in time opportunities will be enlarged till it shall become a matter of course that each individual shall strive to qualify himself to discharge the duties of any office to which he may be called. It was in fact generally believed that no great skill is necessary for the work of governmental administration, and on the other hand that an officer long in the public service would lose sympathy with the people and become a devotee of officialism and bureaucracy. Life estate or even long estate in office was attacked by the democracy of this time in the same way that monarchy and aristocratic privilege had been in an earlier time. This attack was one part of the great movement which swept away what was left of privilege and opened the way for the democratization of political institutions. That some of the ideas accompanying this advance should be crude, radical, or extreme was in the nature of things to be expected. One of the most important measures of this period was the general extension of the suffrage from the property basis to a manhood basis. This change went down to the very roots of political society, and for that reason deserves the most careful attention. At the time when the Republic was founded, there were very strict limitations on the electorate. Political power was kept tightly in the hands of the freeholders, who were to all intents and purposes, the people. These qualifications began to disappear, however, soon after the establishment of the federal government. Few of the new states entering the Union adopted the property requirement, and the old states slowly abandoned the restrictions found in their constitutions. Stubborn resistance to the tendency was often encountered, notably in the case of Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Yet the advance was sure, no backward step was taken, and by the middle of the century, property qualifications for suffrage had been practically abolished in all the states. A few restrictions were still in existence. But these were not oppressive in character and excluded no large section of the community. In the majority of the states, however, even these restrictions were omitted, and the broad principle of manhood suffrage, white, received full recognition. The old property qualifications were outgrown, and a new democracy sprang up based not on the freeholders, but on the whole body of adult male citizens. The electorate was enormously expanded, and there came into existence a type of democracy which made that of revolutionary days seem like a limited aristocracy. Recognition was won for this new idea only after a bitter and protracted struggle. The doctrine that suffrage should depend upon property was tenacious of life and clung desperately to its hold on the state constitutions. The property requirement was supported by some of the ablest men in the nation, and it is from one point of view surprising that the opposite principle was able to make headway against such talented advocates. John Adams, Daniel Webster, and Joseph Story defended the property qualification in Massachusetts. In New York, Chancellor Kent bitterly opposed the adoption of universal suffrage. In Virginia, there were arrayed against the extension of the franchise, Madison, Monroe, Marshall, Randolph, and Upshur. The opposition to the freehold principle could boast of no such formidable champions. The earnestness displayed in the defense of property and the ability with which the cause was conducted are such as might have been expected from a class long accustomed to the possession of the right to govern. To this dominant class, the plan of extending the suffrage to practically all male adults appeared to be fraught with the very gravest danger. The project seemed to them to be without foundation either in reason or in justice, and they did not see how it could result in anything but the subversion of democratic institutions. The results of the adoption of the principle of universal suffrage, as predicted by the famous jurist Kent, 
were the abuse of liberty, the oppression of minorities, and disturbance of charter privileges, the degradation of justice, unequal taxation, crude and unstable legislation. I hope, sir, said the venerable judge, we shall not carry desolation through all the departments of fabric erected by our fathers. I hope we shall not put forward to the world a constitution such as will merit the scorn of the wise and the tears of the patriot. On every hand, it was urged that the freeholders are the safest and most conservative depository of political power. They were considered as the only class capable of actively entering into political affairs. Frequent and always unfavorable contrasts were drawn between the solid class of landed gentry and the commercial and laboring classes found in the cities with the uniform conclusion that political power might be most safely entrusted to those who held the land. This idea was, of course, connected with the theory sanctioned by Jefferson himself that a democracy thrives best when it has an agricultural population as its basis. Profound distrust of the capacity of the urban population for the exercise of political power helped materially to stiffen the resistance made by the ruling class to sharing its authority with others. From the strength displayed by the old aristocracy at this time, one may judge of the importance and the significance of the new democratic movement. In behalf of an increase in the electorate, the argument was less brilliantly conducted, but was nonetheless convincing and effective. Sometimes the plea was made in the interest of the commercial class or the laboring men or of those who had done military duty for the state, but were nevertheless excluded from participation in the suffrage. Sometimes it was asserted that the franchise is a natural right and that therefore men cannot be justly deprived of it, but this was not always contended. The greatest difficulty seemed to be that of uprooting the idea that only the holders of property have an interest in government strong enough to justify giving them a voice in its direction. The proposition that men who own no land in the community should have a share in the political power was contrary to long-established English custom, and to the practice in America since the early days of settlement here. The introduction of any other idea was necessarily difficult. The case of the liberals was most clearly stated in the argument that our community is an association of persons, of human beings, not a partnership founded on property. Thus, the result was made to turn on the question whether property or human personality is the more fundamental element in civil society, or what their relative importance is. One party denounced the rule of mere numbers as illogical and absurd, and showed that it is wholly impossible to carry out the principle fully. The other party, with equal logic, showed if that property were the only consideration, voting power ought then to be proportioned according to wealth. The suffrage extensionists, in reply to the property argument, laid great stress on the elements of virtue and intelligence in society, and declared these were as worthy of consideration as the mere ownership of a tract of land. As one disputant said, there is nothing in property that by enchantment or magic converts frail, erring man into an infallible and impeccable being. It was shown that the non-freeholders are not eager for an opportunity to plunder the rich, but that they are responsible and reliable citizens who may safely be entrusted with the exercise of political power. This assertion was pointed by the fact that many citizens who own no real estate were so prosperous and wealthy that they could not well be looked upon as untrustworthy individuals who would use the ballot to the perversion of the state. Slowly, the old idea that the holders of real estate are the political people was discredited and abandoned, and the way opened to practically all citizens of mature years. The land-holding class abdicated, and the mass of the people was entrusted with the power of political control. This was by far the most important change made during the Jacksonian Epoch, for it radically altered the foundation of the Republic. At the same time, the property qualifications for office-holding became unpopular and were cast aside. When the new states came in, these requirements generally found no place, and the old states, one by one, abolished the severe requirements of colonial and revolutionary days. 
A few states, notably Delaware and Massachusetts, clung persistently to these early provisions or remnants of them almost down to the end of the 19th century, but they were exceptions. Generally speaking, by the middle of the century, property qualifications for office in the United States were a thing of the past. Office was no longer the monopoly of the few, but was thrown open to all so far as wealth was concerned. With these restrictions on suffrage and office went those of a religious character. A majority of the original 13 states disqualified Roman Catholics, and all but New York and Rhode Island imposed a religious test of some kind. These restrictions endured for only a short time, however, and very early began to drop out of the state constitutions. The Protestant clause was first abandoned, and finally the religious tests were omitted altogether. Protestant, Roman Catholic, Jew, Unitarian, and those of no religious profession were placed on the same footing in the political world. The tendency of the time was wholly opposed to conditioning political rights on religious considerations, and although the case was ably argued by those who defended such restrictions, they were unable to make effectual resistance to the demand that religious belief and political capacity should not be connected by the law of the land. With the abolition of these tests disappeared the provisions for public taxation in support of churches in the states, which had inherited religious establishment from the revolution. The establishment of religion had been forbidden the national government in the Constitution, and the same provision was adopted by the states a little later. By 1833, the provisions for taxation and support of ecclesiastical organizations had been abolished, except in New Hampshire, where the Revolutionary Clause is still found in the Constitution. Thus was completed that separation of church and state, which has since been a characteristic feature of American institutions. The idea was early stated by Jefferson, but was not at that time able to win a place for itself. The line of reasoning, however, was substantially that which was later followed. He urged that rights of conscience were not surrendered in the original contract, but were retained by the individual, and that government has therefore no jurisdiction over that field. Government, said he, can interfere only in respect to such acts as are injurious to others, but it does me no injury for my neighbors to say there are twenty gods or no god, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. He denied that uniformity of belief was desirable, pointing out the advantages arising from variety, but even if desirable, such uniformity was not attainable by the use of coercion. The only effect of the use of force he maintained was to make one half of the world fools and the other half hypocrites. The same principle was strongly stated by Madison. He argued that state support of religion is unjustifiable because, in the first place, the right to religion is inalienable. It is a duty to the creator and is a reserve right in the social contract. Interference in this matter violates the principle of equality by allowing some men the free exercise of religion and forbidding it to others. It gives the legislature unwarranted jurisdiction and confers power on civil magistrates to act as judges of religious truth, a capacity in which they are not fitted to serve. Such measures, he urges, are not needed for the advancement of the Christian religion, nor do they tend to strengthen the civil government. The effect of an attempt to enforce such laws is simply to enervate the laws in general and to slacken the bands of society. The abolition of religious tests and church establishment during this period was a recognition of these ideas. In general, the line of reasoning followed was about that indicated by Jefferson and Madison. The underlying cause seems to have been the multiplicity of sects, which was highly favorable to mutual toleration rather than antipathy to religion as such. Another feature of the democratic movement during the first half of the 19th century was the increasing participation of the people in the election of their officers. In the earlier period, this power had been largely in the hands of the legislature, and hence the choice of officers was, to that extent, indirect. With the increasing emphasis on the people, however, and the reaction from the early confidence in the legislatures, there came a decided change. 
Elections were taken out of the hands of the legislative bodies, and officers were chosen directly by the popular vote. In the national government, popular voting under the district system took the place of election by the legislature in the choice of representatives in the House. And the choice of presidential electors was also taken away from the legislature. In the states, a tendency in the same direction was clearly evident. The choice of governor was taken away from the legislature and conferred upon the people, thus rendering him less dependent upon the legislative branch of government. Other officers, such as the treasurer and the auditor, were given over to popular election in place of choice through the legislature. Many minor officers were also made directly elective, such as clerks of court, sheriffs, and justices of the peace. The theory upon which this action rested was that the legislature is a more or less aristocratic body and that the people should participate directly in the choice of their officers. In the same connection should be noticed the popular opposition to certain elements in the judicial system which were considered as aristocratic. The courts, state, as well as national, were objects of suspicion and often of open hostility. The federal Supreme Court was feared because of its alleged encroachment upon the rights of the individual states, but the Commonwealth courts also met with opposition from the newly awakened democratic sentiment. This desire to put a check on the judiciary was expressed in two ways namely by an abbreviation of the judicial term of office and by constitutional provision for the election of the judges by the people. In the early days of the Republic, the tenure of the judges had generally been doing good behavior. Life tenure, however, was obnoxious to the new democracy and was repudiated as occasion offered, particularly in the South and West and also in some of the Eastern states. The tenure for life was replaced by a shorter term of from five to 15 years, six, seven, and eight years being the most common periods allotted popular election of the judges was less easily carried through than the shortening of the term. At first, provision was made for the election of justices of the peace and minor officers, but toward the middle of the century, popular election of the higher courts began to find general favor. This movement was looked upon with alarm by the conservative class, but the idea made rapid progress as constitutions were constructed and reconstructed and soon won a general victory. In the period from 1846 to 1853, no fewer than 13 states recognized the elective principle in the choice of judicial officers of the highest grades. Thus, with the abandonment of life tenure of office and the adoption of a popular system of judicial election, the democracy triumphed in the third great branch of government, the judiciary. Another evidence of the democratic tendencies of this period is the method in which changes in the fundamental law were made. Of the revolutionary constitutions, only two were submitted to the people, the others being adopted by convention alone. By 1830, the practice of submitting constitutions to a popular vote for ratification had become frequent, and in the period from 1830 to 1850, only two constitutions went into operation without having received popular sanction at the polls. Summing up the democratic movement of this period, we have the following results. The electorate was largely increased by the abolition of property qualifications. Religious and property requirements for office holding were abandoned. Terms of office were shortened. The principle of rotation in office was accepted. Provision was made for popular election of officers. The legislative department of government became an object of suspicion, and the executive was correspondingly advanced in popular favor. These numerous and important changes marked the rise of a new democracy, widely different from that of revolutionary times or the early days of the republic. The new type of government was as much in advance on that of the revolutionary period as that of the days was upon the contemporary government in England. The only exception to the democratic movement was the position in regard to slavery. In the southern states, accompanying the democratic changes in government, there were laws of increasing severity in respect to those held in bondage. With this exception, the new democracy had taken the country by storm. 
In spite of these marked democratic changes, there was little advance in the fundamental principles of political theory. The Jacksonian democracy carried out in large measure the ideas which the Jeffersonian democracy either had not thought of carrying out or was unable to carry out. The theory was not new, but such a wide application of these ideas was a decided innovation. In fact, there was on some points a perceptible reaction from the principles of 1776. This is notable in the case of the contract theory, which was subjected to important modifications. Story, for example, held that the doctrine of the contract requires many limitations and qualifications when applied to the actual condition of nations, even of those which are most free in their organization. Every state, however, organized embraces many persons in it who have never assented to its form of government and many who are deemed incapable of such assent, and yet who are held bound by its fundamental institutions and laws. On the other hand, Calhoun and his associates, who upheld the cause of slavery, repudiated altogether the natural right theory of politics and came out boldly with another doctrine. With these two tendencies coincided that of the German refugee, Lieber. Thus the revolutionary theory, although still widely accepted and defended by many writers and thinkers, was already seriously undermined. Although the organization of the government and the spirit of social institutions was more democratic than before, there were strong evidences of a change in the character of the political theory. This movement was in the direction of a new basis for democracy, a new theory of republican institutions fundamentally different from that of the founders of the republic. The nature of this new philosophy will be considered in a subsequent chapter on modern tendencies. End of chapter 5